if anyone doesn't want to hear something really, really dark and difficult and horrible, feel free to wander out that way and get a cup of tea. You're welcome to do that. Otherwise, let's uh, strap ourselves in, hey? All right. Um, So today's uh, Bible passage we're looking at is the last three chapters of Judges, although some extracts of it because it's quite a long passage. But uh, who would like to, to read it? Would anyone like to come up and read? Thank you, Tim. Uh, perhaps if you do it in the mic, soon people can hear. Now in those days, Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day, he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him and returned to her father's home in Bethlehem. After about four months, her husband sent out for Bethlehem to speak personally to her and persuade her to come back. He took with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. When he arrived at her father's house, her father saw him and welcomed him. Her father urged him to stay a while, so he stayed three days eating, drinking, and sleeping there. Next slide. On the fourth day, the man was up early, ready to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Have something to eat before you go. So the two men sat down together and had something to eat and drink. Then the woman's father said, Please stay another night and enjoy yourself. The man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay. So he finally gave in and stayed the night. On the morning of the fifth day, he was up early again, ready to leave. And again, the woman's father said, have something to eat, then you can leave later this afternoon. So they had another day of feasting. Later, as the man and his concubine and servant were preparing to leave, his father-in-law said, look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early and be on your way. But this time, the man was determined to leave. So he took his two saddled donkeys and his concubine and headed in the direction of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It was late in the day when they neared Jebus, and the man's servant said to him, Let's stop at this Jebusite town and spend the night there. No, his master said, we can't stay in this foreign town where there are no Israelites. Instead, we will go to onto Gabir. Come on, let's try to get as far as... Gabir or Ramah, and will spend the night in one of those towns. So they went on. The sun was setting as they came to Gabir, a town in the land of Benjamin. So they stopped there to spend the night. They rested in the town square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man came home from his work in the fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was living in Gabir, where the people were from the tribe of Benjamin. When he saw the travellers sitting in the town square, he asked them where they were from and where they were going. We have been in Bethlehem in Judah, the man replied. We are on our way to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, which is my home. I travelled to Bethlehem and now I am returning home. But no one has taken us in for the night, even though we have everything we need. 
We have straw and feed for our donkeys and plenty of bread and wine for ourselves. You're welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. So he took them home with him and fed the donkeys. After they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. While they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers don't do such an evil thing, for this man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at the... Um, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since, left Egypt, uh, since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? Then all the Israelites were united as one man, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, including those across the Jordan in the land of Gilead. The entire community assembled in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. So all the Israelites were completely united, and they gathered together to attack the town. The Israelites sent messages to the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What a terrible thing has been done among you. Give up those evil men, those troublemakers from Gabeah, so we can execute them and purge Israel of this evil. But the people of Benjamin would not listen. Instead, they came from their towns and gathered at Gabeah, to fight the Israelites. That day, the tribe of Benjamin lost 25,000 strong warriors, armed with swords, leaving only 600 men who escaped to the rock of Rimon, where they lived for four months. And the Israelites returned and slaughtered every living thing in all the towns, the people, the livestock, and everything they found. They also burned down all the towns they came to. The Israelites felt sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, Today, one of the tribes of Israel has been cut off. How can we find wives for the few who remain, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them our daughters in marriage? So they asked, Who among the tribes of Israel did not join us at Mizpah when we assembled in the presence of the Lord? And they discovered that no one from Jabesh Galid had attended the assembly. For after they counted all the people, no one from Jabesh Galid was present. So the assembly sent 12,000 of their best warriors to Jabesh Gilead with orders to kill everyone there, including women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. Completely destroy all the males and every woman who is not a virgin. Among the residents of Jabesh Gilead, they found 400 young virgins who had never slept with a man, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh in the land of Canaan. The Israelite assembly sent a peace delegation to the remaining people of Benjamin who were living at the Rock of Rimon. 
Then the men of Benjamin returned to their homes, and the 400 women of Jebeskalid who had been spared were given to them as wives. But there were not enough women for all of them. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Thank you, Tim. Well, what do you reckon? How did that story of this Levite man, his concubine, Gibeah, and the first civil war of ancient Israel make you feel? Who'd like to, to share how they feel after that story? Bleak. Bleak is a good word, isn't it? Very disturbed, yeah. Not a good story, is it? Pretty horrible. Okay, where to go from that? Let's go to the next slide. In those days, Israel had no king. So we're talking, I don't know, at least 1000 BC, maybe a bit before. Um, And the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That phrase comes up again and again in the book of Judges. It's a really important phrase. They had no king. And that was really, really odd. In that part of the world, for thousands of years before and after, kings were universal. Every single nation, every single city, every single tribe had kings. There was one king for every, every tribe. Always a king, except Israel. So it was a very odd state of affairs to be in, to not have a king. Very different than the lands around them. And this had a big impact because kings actually had a really important role in the ancient Near East. So um, the next slide tells about those roles. So they had really three main roles. The king was meant to promote justice and order, um, to look after the disadvantaged, to make sure evil people were punished, people got justice. There's a, a picture of Hammurabi's Code of Laws up there, which is a very, very famous ancient code of laws, which uh, describes crimes and punishments um, in the ancient world. The king was also meant to protect the people from foreign invaders. Um, the king was always first in line going out to a battle. The king was on the horse or with the sword raised high, running into battle to protect the people with the other soldiers. And so there's a, a picture of a famous battle uh, where Nebuchadnezzar II was leading the warriors in the Battle of Carchemish. So kings had to protect as well. Not just about law and order, there was also protection. And then there was this idea that there was a special divine connection for the king. So in ancient Egypt, for example, the king himself, the pharaoh, was thought to be a descendant of the, the sun god Ra. And in all the other areas in the ancient Near East, the king, although wasn't thought to be a god, the king was thought to represent the god, to be the viceroy for the god on earth. So the king had a special way of connecting with that nation's god. So they were the three things kings were meant to do. Kingship came with a lot of privilege in the ancient world, but it came with huge responsibility. But Israel had no king, which is really, really odd, like I said. Does anyone know why Israel had no king? Because God was meant to be their king. So when Israel formed as a nation after the Exodus, God specifically said he was going to lead them. He was going to be their king. And you can see that with a a few, uh, next slide, a few sort of concepts. God gave them the law, the law of Moses. He gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus and then further laws in uh, Deuteronomy. So there God is acting as a king, telling the people, these are the laws that you need for a good, well-ordered society. 
he protected them as well. Um, in Deuteronomy, he promised them the blessing of protection. Should they stay true to him and faithful to him, he would give them blessings and he would bring them protection. And of course, God himself was the special divine connection then with Israel. And that could be seen in the tabernacle, the, the big tent, where they would worship God and bring sacrifices to him, which was also where God's presence was. And that was actually physically manifest to people in the ancient days with this cloud where God would come down in a cloud of fire to be present at the temple or at the tabernacle. So God was meant to be the king that fulfilled all of those purposes of justice and order, protection and a connection with the divine. All right, let's have a look at the next one. So Judges 19.21 isn't how things were meant to be. There was meant to be God as king who was providing the justice, the peace, the order that was needed. And so Judges 19-21, what we read, is a warning of what happens when people abandon God as their king. We saw what happened with this poor woman being murdered, raped and murdered, and then this... The, the, the spiral of events that happened after it, leading to revenge, murder, and uh, more, more, more and more killing. It just spiraled out of control from that one event. So it's a real warning. That's a warning that, that we can see, I think, in societies today. So I was just thinking about a few of the things in history. Look at societies where God hasn't been made primary where God hasn't hasn't been put in the forefront and where people have abandoned God. Uh, the first picture there is uh, a picture from the Aztec civilization in Central America where human sacrifices were were constant to appease their fake, their false gods and there was terrible murder done in the Aztecs. Lots of people sacrificed, thousands of people. Then think about our century Stalin and what he did in, in Russia with millions of people murdered, sent to the gulags and murdered. And that was a, a, an atheist regime um, where, where there was a disavowal of the reality of God. And then look today, places like the Middle East where ISIS, when they took over, uh, who would want to live there? A horrible society where people were beheaded and murdered and treated in all manner of of horrific ways, these are people who don't know God, who have abandoned God. The Middle East was once full of Christians, and now it's not. So Judges 19.21 is a warning to us, and we can see that warning in Judges, and we can see that warning in our history. It's a warning for us in Australia today. I guess we think about our country as being a relatively peaceful country, one which is based on Christian values, foundation, I guess the same as America. But that's changing. The, the census data was released earlier in the week for the 2021 census. And I, I've graphed up there what's happening in Australia with the number of Christians versus non-Christians. If you go back to 1971, 90% of Australians identified as a Christian. And you can see every year it's dropping off. And for the first time in history, it's less than 50% now, at about 44%. And you can see people not a Christian doing the exact opposite, going the other way. 
So it's a warning for us, Judges 19.21, and this is something that is happening in our society, in our culture. People are abandoning God. And I think, as I look at our world, I think I can see some in our society. There are things that I see which, which are good indications of that change that's happening in our society. And I know these might be a little bit controversial for some people, but, but I think about the abortion debate that's been had in America recently and, and in Australia too. How can we as a society... How can we as a society promote the killing of babies unborn? You know, that would have been unthinkable to people 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And then I was watching on the news some of the, the events of Pride Month and I saw these pictures of, I think, Christina Aguilera doing the most hideous things on stage. It's a pretty ugly society we're developing and we're creating and then there's a picture of church burning down in Canada. You know, last year in Canada, 62 churches were burnt down. Um, there was this string of arson attacks against churches. No one ever caught the people behind it. But a real hatred of Christianity is developing there. And so this warning in Judges 19.21 is a warning to us today. And we can probably see some things in our own society. It's also a warning of what happens when people don't actually stand up and oppose evil. Judges 19 is. So as we read the story, or as Tim read it, thanks for reading it, Tim, what were some of the examples of evil that, that you could pick up on that you saw? Who wants to share? Yeah, Andrew. They didn't have... They didn't, there was no good guy in that story. There wasn't, was there? The, the people who pushed the girl out of the door were as bad as the people on the other side. Yep. So there's a lot of selfishness there, isn't there? There was no good guy. I agree with that. I was thinking about the concubine's father and how he was almost trying to delay the inevitable of him, his daughter being taken away again. So he must have maybe thought, if I can keep her here, give this guy happy to stay here if it was impossible, then she might be able to almost escape it. Is his thought process. It was interesting that. I was wondering what that was all about. I didn't know whether that was just Middle Eastern hospitality or, or something else. I know. But is that just one of those sequence of events that just happens? No one's to blame for it, really? I don't know. Yeah. Yep. I think it's sad that he went, he pushed on to go to a city or town where they were to life because he thought that that has crossed my mind as I was reading that. You know, was that a, a total distrust of another ethnic group or race? Was that sort of a background racism there? Or was it just, you know, just being realistic that it wouldn't have been safe in there? I don't know. It's a good, good thought, though. I know. Oh, I want another girl. I don't want one, but I don't want it to be my wife. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. It's horrible. Yep. Any other? Yeah, Hanukkah to stand by and go, this is a terrible crime, so we're going to make up 
Well, they were soldiers who were fighting them. It's more the, the innocent children and women in the town they went and killed afterwards. Yeah. Isn't it just? Don't have wives. I know. Everything is just crazy, isn't it? The solution of yep. the answers to problems is all of them were bad. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Do you want to pull up the next slide? So as I was going through the story again this, this afternoon, I saw so many times that there was sin and evil there. So it just it started with pure selfishness. He brought home a woman to be his concubine. So a concubine is an addition to a wife, so it's a second wife, but someone who doesn't have the status as a wife, doesn't have any of the rights of a wife. He just wanted some extra property for, to gratify his, his sexual desires. That's where it all started, isn't it? And then she became angry. I don't know why she became angry, but anger is usually sinful. And so she left him. Her place of responsibility was to stay with him, and she left. There's something else happening there. Then when he comes back to um, his home with her, or walking back, he goes to the, the city square. So this is in the days before hotels and hostels existed, and people would wait at the city or the town square for someone to invite them in. And no one took them in for the, for the night. You know, there's a real lack of hospitality. That's another, another sin there. Then the group of men that came and pounded on the door, full of lust, another, another sin. Bring out this man, they said, so we can have sex with him. And then the aggression, the shouting, the banging, they were probably kicking at the door, trying to ram it down. Another sin. And think about the pride. It really was an honour-shame society, wasn't it? The, the man who was looking after this Levite as his guest, he started off saying something right. You know, It would be shameful for you to take this man and rape him. But, but he cared only about the appearance of shame, because all of a sudden he changed the, the thought, why don't I just give you my virgin daughter and this man's concubine? I'll just send them out, you can abuse them. So that, that uh, pride, he wanted to look like he was uh, a good host and was honourable, but it didn't extend to treating his daughter or this man's concubine well, did it? And then look at the violence. They spent the night abusing this woman and raping her. Then when, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with the cutting the woman up into to 12 pieces, but, but when, the, when the people of Israel found out about this and they went to the tribe of Benjamin and said, hand over the men who've committed this crime, look at the, think about the arrogance of the people of Benjamin. The people of Benjamin would not listen. They, were, they cared more about protecting their own than they did about justice. And then after this war happened and thousands of men were killed, and think about the revenge. They've just had their battle. They've won. 600 men have fled. The towns are all empty of men, just women and children and old people now. And they go into all the towns of Benjamin and kill every woman, every old person, every child there, as well as animals and burning down the towns. Look at how that revenge has just taken hold. And then it ends with a bit of slavery. You know, the, the 600 men that, that have hidden away on this, this hilltop somewhere... They need wives, um, and everyone starts feeling sorry for them. So what are we going to do? Oh, well, we'll just go kidnap 400 women and murder everyone else in the town and give them 
to the, those 600 men for wives. It's remarkable, isn't it, the amount of evil in this story. It's, it's incredible. And like Nicole said, it just sort of snowballed out of control. It just reminded me of, of this slippery slope that we get on as humans. Once we start going down a pathway of evil, it leads to more evil and more evil. And we, we don't even see it. Um, you start with one small little sin and it grows. And we make ourselves uh, immune to the effects of it. We, we don't worry about it and we can get worse and worse and worse. And that's what's happening here. It's absolutely incredible. So that's the real warning for us, that we can join that slippery slope. As I was thinking about it, there are a few ways to deal with with evil. And here are some options, I thought. And these are all seen in this passage in Judges 19 to 21. Sometimes the best way we think as humans to deal with evil is just to ignore it. Turn turn away from it and ignore it. Sometimes we, we find it frightening. We cower before it. Other times we decide just to go along with it because that's the, that's the easy path. And then sometimes we even embrace it and we, we start seeing evil as good. And so those, those are four ways to deal with evil. And they're all wrong. There's one way that we're meant to deal with evil. And that is to oppose it. Now, the way we oppose it might vary from situation to situation. But this is the calling of, of the Bible. And it is the warning in Judges 19 that we need to stand opposed to evil in our own lives and in our societies. I guess particularly in our own lives, though. Do you want to pull up the next one, Neil? So, there is hope It's hard to see hope in the story of Judges 19, but I think there is hope. And the hope is kind of of got to be inferred from the story a little bit. But when we stand up for good, when we oppose evil, we actually do make a difference. There are heaps of Bible passages about this. So here are a few of them that I looked up today. The man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In Psalm 94, the the writer of this poem calls out, who's going to rise up for me against the wicked? Who's going to take a stand for me against evildoers? And then Paul wrote in Ephesians, don't take any part in worthless deeds. Don't take part in evil and in darkness. Instead, expose it. Expose evil deeds. And in Isaiah, God says these words to us. What sorrow for those who say evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. There have been plenty of examples through history of people standing up for and opposing evil, and it makes a real difference. So William Wilberforce, he was the, the man who ended slavery in the British Empire in the, what, the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he, he um, have you seen the movie Amazing Grace? Really good movie that shares how his faith really informed him so that he stood up against the evil of slavery. And uh, this is a quote from him. You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say 
that you didn't know. In World War II, there was all that evil around, around the German people, and most people just ignored it or even embraced it. But there were some, like, uh, like um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer here, who stood up against evil and tried to stop what was happening. Now, he, he ended up paying for that with his life, but he tried. And he wrote about this, um, about standing up against evil, and he said, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold it guiltless. Not hold us guiltless if we're silent. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Now these are obviously huge things. In our lives, it's unlikely we're going to be standing up against such evil as these two men did. But there are things in our lives, little things, that we can stand opposed to. I don't know, you've probably got... Uh, examples in your own life of where you've had to stand up against evil, something that you've been doing, you've had to actively stop, or someone you've seen committing some sort of evil, you've had to stand up against. And that's, that's a calling, and that's the warning from Judges 19, that we should be doing that. There's a really good movie about this, um, Gran Torino. Anyone seen Gran Torino? It's a pretty good movie, don't you reckon, Neil? Uh, and uh, Clint Eastwood is, is the, the, the hero of the movie. It's, it's pretty violent, and it's very crude language, but it's a great movie. And um, there's this boy, Tao, and uh, he starts off on the wrong track, uh, committing some evil, actually, and, and Clint Eastwood takes him on and helps him stand up against evil, and Clint Eastwood himself has to stand up against evil through the, throughout the movie. And I'm, I'm going to play one of the, the end scenes for it, just because it's a great movie. Can we get the light off? Me. 
So you have to watch the movie to find out how it ends. <laughs> but it's, it's all about standing for justice, standing up against, uh, against sin, against evil, and what a difference it makes. Because light shines in the darkness. You can't hide darkness once you start shining light into it. And these, these are beautiful words from the Gospel of John about Jesus. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of Christ overcomes. It only overcomes in part now in this life. It only overcomes partly the evil in our own lives at the moment and the evil in the society around us. It doesn't fully remove it now, but one day it will ultimately all evil will be gone in full. And uh, this reminds me of, of the, the most well-known passage in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. None of us are going to perish eternally. Although there's society around us that might be crumbling at times, our own lives even, sin in, in them, we might feel like we're crumbling at times, it's going to be overcome because Jesus has overcome it on the cross. Remember that he said, I am the light of the world. What else did he say about light? He said, in him was life, if we go back, and the life was the light of all people. And your word, God, is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Light overcomes darkness, and that's, that's kind of really what I want to finish on today. Such a terrible story we read, full of darkness, but light overcomes it. So just reflect on these, these passages from the Bible as we finish up the sermon. In Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light of all people. And so let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the call for this week. When we read passages like Judges 19, 20 and 21, when we see evil in our world today, remember, stand for light. Let God's light emanate into you and out of you.